Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Before Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law because he was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take home Mary as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. sensation in the Star Wars universe, isn't he? And his big eyes and his uh, Yoda-esque, you know, alien features, his wide ears and his little green self has just caused the internet to melt in adoration 
Uh, so much so that uh, Vanity Fair, a publication that I don't read, but I found the title of their article on an easy Google search, said, Baby Yoda has conquered the world. <laughs> and the New York Times wrote a piece uh, last week called, Baby Yoda is your God. And they were talking about the way that the streaming service of Disney Plus uh, has had all this success, and largely in part it's because people are in love with this little guy right here. Uh, he has produced tens of thousands of memes and new internet themes. He's literally breaking Instagram and Facebook everywhere you turn, and his cuteness just can't be contained. Uh, one of the really funny economic stories of December has to do with this little guy. And the story is that Disney did not produce a ton of merchandise for Baby Yoda in advance of the release of the show. And so from the beginning of December, there have been a lot of economic stories about how Disney has missed out on tens of millions of dollars because they didn't have enough Baby Yoda mugs and enough Baby Yoda sweatshirts and enough Baby Yoda dolls to go around. And nobody could get their Baby Yoda fix this year. Uh, there's a competing theory, it's probably the right one, that Disney knows exactly what they're doing and they're going to find out a way to get your money because they're going to get you to go see a movie and then they'll sell you merchandise later. So I don't know exactly how it works, but either way, uh, this guy right here has been getting all of the attention. Uh, may the force be with him. Right? Uh, so, we've got this baby who's come, this child who's come. Uh, what does it mean? What does it mean that the Christ child has come. Uh, maybe Yoda has been Baby Yoda, which by the way isn't really his name. Nobody knows his name, they just call him Baby Yoda because he looks like him. Maybe he has been uh, underestimated by Disney. Maybe he's been underestimated in that they didn't prepare for his arrival with such great expectation that they had enough merchandise to sell and make all the money that they wanted. How did Joseph and Mary underestimate the birth of their son Jesus? How do we today underestimate what it means that the child has come? And I want us to ask the question today and to think about uh, the Christ child from this perspective and from this question. What is the good news of this birth? Do we fully estimate and understand the real impact that the birth has had? I know you understand the impact that Jesus has had. Uh, but do you understand the impact of the birth and the good news in it? I was raised in a Church of Christ world where we didn't talk about Christmas at Christmas time. Except maybe to say, we don't talk about Christmas at Christmas time. <laughs> there are a lot of reasons that this might have been the case, uh, but for some people where I grew up, they made the point that we don't know when Jesus was born, so we shouldn't overdo it. Uh, and they might be right, we don't know exactly the date he was born, okay, uh, you know, that's not such a big deal. And then there are these conspiracies that the Catholic Church took a pagan holiday and uh, they baptized it and they made a Christian holiday out of it. Maybe for some reason then we shouldn't do it. And so the church I grew up in took this so far that we would sing Joy to the World in July as a point that we didn't sing it in December. Maybe some of you know uh, what I'm talking about. And I think the problem with this, uh, it's not that we have determined the date of Jesus' birth. No, we still don't know that for sure. And it's not that there haven't been pagan holidays baptized and turned into Christian seasons of the year. No, most of human history was first taken from God by paganism. And then God is baptizing and restoring every day of the year and every season of the year back for his good purposes and turning them back to his glory, which was their original intent. Amen, church. 
And so any season of the year is appropriate to worship Jesus in his fullness of life, from his birth to his death, uh, but especially right now, when we have been reading great texts about the birth of Jesus. It's important for us to recognize and to try to estimate what did the birth really mean. And so today, unashamedly, we sing songs about his arrival. We sing songs about his birth, and we read scriptures like the one that we have today uh, that talks about Joseph and Mary, uh, especially as Joseph today is struggling to deal with the fact that Mary has been promised this child and to understand what it means. Take a minute with me. Uh, we will end this morning with our communion service. So we'll start with his birth, we'll end with his death and resurrection, and then we'll have a benedictive prayer and a final song, and we'll leave together uh, to celebrate and enjoy the season. But follow with me through this text as we look for what is the good news in the birth of Jesus. Uh, Matthew 1 reads this way. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. They looked at marriage a little different than we do, so when they were betrothed, when they were engaged, it was a binding covenant relationship. They weren't together yet as a married couple, but for either of them to break off the relationship and be with someone else would be like violating your uh, marriage vows. And so there is a real problem for Joseph here. One problem is that Mary, uh, has she been unfaithful? What happened? That's a problem. The other question, or the other problem, is that Joseph is a righteous man. So when Joseph faces the problem of Mary's pregnancy, he's going to face it as a Bible-reading, Torah-obedient Jew who is a righteous man. And he is a Bible student. He's a good 511-style Bible reader. And because he knows the law, he knows that it says there's two choices. If Mary is guilty of having slept with someone else and broken their vows, she is supposed to be put to death. And it's Joseph's job to turn her over to the authorities so that she can be put to death. On the other hand, if she was abused or taken advantage of, they're supposed to put her through this public test by which it will be determined whether she was innocent or not. And either way Joseph could choose, it would put Mary through public disgrace. And it potentially could lead to her death of this loved one of his. And so Joseph is struggling because he knows the law and knows what he is supposed to do. But Joseph knows more than the letter of the law. He also knows the intent of God's law, which is that people would become lovers of God with all their mind, soul, heart, and strength, and that they would learn to love their neighbor as himself. And he probably didn't put those two verses together that way, the way his son, his adopted son Jesus, would later do for us. But he seems to understand the intention of the law, which is that the reason the laws exist is to show other people love and extend the love of God to them. So as Joseph is puzzling through this, he does not want to expose her to disgrace. He intends to divorce her quietly because Joseph is righteous, not just in the letter of the law, but in its intent. He wants to do what's right by everyone. But what a conundrum. He's in a pickle. So after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And this messenger from God said, Joseph, son of David. 
With those words, the angel reminds us, as well as reminding Joseph, of his lineage, of who he is descended from. The greatest king of Israel, David, to whom God had promised, I'll put one of your descendants on the throne forever. He will have a reign without end. And Joseph is living in a time when there is no king, son of David, on the throne. Has God failed in his promises? The world seems dark. The world seems to be without light. And they need the light of the world. They need the king, the son of David. Matthew, in chapter 1, has been trying to build uh, intentionally the tension in the story to this moment. We didn't read the genealogy today because it's long and it's a little bit dry and it could seem like a boring reading uh, in, in church service. 16 verses here. 16 verses uh, in which it says this guy was the father of this other guy who was the father of this other guy. But as you read through them, you realize that Matthew is intentionally building for an important moment of impact in the story. Because he highlights 14 individuals within a section of the people of God. So he goes 14 generations, but he leaves out a name here or there to make sure that he has exactly 14. And then he gives another series of generations. He gives 14 more names and a third set of 14 names. And as he's doing this, the reason Matthew is highlighting these names specifically is that he is saying like with neon lights in the text, David, David, David. David's name in Hebrew is the Hebrew number 14. And so by crafting these 14 generation chunks, Matthew is saying, we need a new David. We need a new David. We need a new David. And then he comes to Joseph and he remembers the angel said to him, Joseph, son of David. All these promises of God coming to his people, could they come true in the son of Mary and Joseph? Could there be a king for the people of God to light their way? And so he says, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what's conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus. Because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place, according to Matthew, to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah. Now we've read from Isaiah several times this month. But there's an important reading in Isaiah chapter 7. that talks about the virgin conceiving and giving birth to a son. And they'll call his name Emmanuel. We don't know that anybody was reading that text thinking at the time of Jesus, well, one day there will be another virgin who will have another son named Emmanuel. We don't know whether they were thinking that or not. What they knew was that in their history, there had been a time when the people of God were in great need. Israel was oppressed by Assyria. And there was fear that Assyria was going to come in and just squash them and wipe them out. And the king of Israel was trying to make a decision whether or not to partner with other pagan nations in order to try to protect himself against the empire of Assyria. And this didn't please God. And so through the prophet Isaiah, God sent word to the king to say, hold on, don't make deals with the darkness. I will come to your deliverance. 
And the sign for you will be that there is this virgin in your own palace who will give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel. And when you see that happen, you'll know that the word of Isaiah is true, and God is going to save the people. So the name Emmanuel means God with us. And this is what would happen for the king in his palace when he heard the servant boy being called by his mother day in and day out. Emmanuel, come and get your breakfast. Emmanuel, please pick up your toys. Right? Because this is what little boys do. They leave their toy swords laying all over the hallway of the royal palace. Emmanuel, your grandfather has arrived. Come and say hi to him. And the king would hear this, hear the little boy being called Emmanuel, Emmanuel. But in his language, what he was hearing is God with us. So he would hear, God with us, come and have your breakfast. God with us, pick up your toys. Isn't that a funny thing? God with us, come and kiss your grandfather on the cheek and greet him. He's arrived, whatever. And the king each time would be reminded when he would hear the little boy's name, God has promised, he has pointed through this boy as a sign towards a great deliverance, a great gift, that God is going to do something, and this name and this little baby reminds me, it's a sign pointing to what God is going to do. And so the same is true for Joseph and for Mary and for you and for I. That when God sent us, Jesus, the Son of God, into the world, He named Him in a way to remind us and to remind His earthly parents that God was pointing towards a great salvation. He was going to do a great work in Him. And so they give Him this name, Jesus, which means, in their language, God saved. And so think about Mary and Joseph in their home having the same kind of experience as the Israelite king in his palace. God saves. Come and get your breakfast. God saves. Would you please pick up your toys? Isn't this maybe the only time you've ever heard in a sermon, this idea? Jesus, pick up your toys. Jesus, come and greet your grandfather. You know, he's come to see you. God with us. God saves. Come and see your grandfather. He's come to visit. And each time they would say his name, Jesus, or the other prophetic name, Emmanuel, Joseph and Mary would be reminded of the promise that God was pointing to a great salvation. And so, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son. <laughs> And, this is how we see Joseph as faithful and righteous, he gave him the name Jesus, just as he was instructed to do. And when he does this, he does something very important. By naming Jesus, he does the ancient equivalent in his world and time of adopting Jesus formally and making him his son. An heir to his lineage and his inheritance and all of the privileges of being a son of David. So Joseph, as the Bible says, who was thought to have been the father of Jesus, but actually he was conceived by the Holy Spirit through Mary in a virgin birth, becomes then the adopted and legal father of Jesus by obeying God and naming him and pointing forward to the salvation and the promise that God had made. And we want to think about this for a minute. 
This morning as we meditate on that faithfulness and that name that was given to him and the presence of God in this child, we're thinking about what is that good news and what does it mean? And I want us to be reminded today that Jesus does save. His name, God saves, is true. And it is more true than what we could ever possibly think and imagine. Never less true. So if we have already grasped and understood that Jesus saves through the cross, that we'll remember with our communion service here in a few minutes, that Jesus saves by the shedding of His blood, that Jesus saves by the power of His resurrection, these are all true statements of how Jesus saved us. Amen, church? Amen. Amen. But there is more than that. Jesus has also saved us by becoming God with us. The gospel about Jesus, the good news about Jesus, is what Jesus did to become King of kings and Lord of lords. And that starts not at the cross. It starts at the birth. When God does for the first time in history and the last time in history a remarkable new thing, that He becomes human with us. He doesn't leave us alone and abandoned, but in the most real way ever, He participates with us in humanity. The Hebrews author, reflecting on this later, would say that in Jesus we have a great high priest who's able to understand and bear with us in our weaknesses, because he was tempted as we are in every way, yet was without sin. And he reminds us that high priests and kings are chosen from among the people group. You've got to be the human leader of the people to be the king of the people or to be the high priest of the people. And so he says for that reason, Jesus became one of us. So that he could be our high priest and our king. And this is often hard to remember when we think about this baby, this child in a manger. Because what does it mean to be a baby? To be a baby means to be soft, to be cute, to be helpless, to be loved, to have very little verbal skills, it means to perform three basic functions, eating, sleeping, pooping. Repeat, and repeat, and repeat. To be a baby means that you don't have a lot of emotional skills. You cannot negotiate. You don't have great strength. You can't convince people and win them over by arguments. To be a baby means to be held. To be a baby means you need someone with you. Jesus became with us. Maybe one of the greatest ways that this is true is that He's not just with us in our death. He's not just with us in our uh, needing forgiveness of sins. But He is with us in our needing to be held, in our being helpless, in our needing someone to care for us and understand us, in not being alone. There was a book that I read a number of years ago called Under the Overpass. And in it, two young men set out to try to live like homeless people for a year. They want to understand what it's like to be homeless. And so they leave their possessions with their families and they move out with just a set of clothes and a bag and a guitar and they begin to live under overpasses and along highways and in cities and uh, not working for employment but simply trying to beg on the street and play music and uh, see if they can make it through the world this way. Now, uh, you can 
have your say on whether you think this is a, a good and worthy experiment for two young guys to spend their year doing, but they learned a lot. And one of the most important things that they learned, uh, two of the things they left you with at the end of the book were these. One of the most important was the hardest part about being homeless was not the hunger and it was not the cold, it was being invisible. That people would walk past you and they would see you without seeing you. That they might even drop money in your cup, they might even drop some in the guitar case as you're playing music, but they would avoid at all costs making eye contact because to make eye contact was to be with you. People don't want to be with you when you smell that bad and look that rough and when you're that much of a problem. Another thing that they took away was this. As much as they tried to truly be homeless for the year and really live in the experience, they never could be fully with the homeless the way they wanted to be. Because at any moment, they could go to a payphone, they could call a well-off family that was their own relatives, and they could say, pick us up, bring us home. We were wrong. This was a bad idea. You know, bring Starbucks. At any moment, they could pick up the phone. They could have Chick-fil-A dropped off in an SUV at their corner, and they could go home and have a show. And they didn't know exactly what it was like to be, to be the homeless even when they were with the homeless. This is why Jesus comes as the Christ child. Not to be God near us, and not to be God who empathizes with us or sympathizes with us, but to be God who has become among us. To be God who is with us in the truest sense of participating in our nature. By the time Matthew ends his gospel, uh, and he's still thinking about these things. Like the great promise is that Jesus isn't just alongside next to you. He's not just with you. He has become one of you. That God has done an irrevocable, uh, unchangeable thing. In that, Jesus didn't even become human just for a while. He didn't go, when his ascension back to heaven, he didn't become unhuman again. Uh, after the resurrection, remember what he says to his followers. He eats the fish and he says, uh, look, I have flesh and blood too. I'm not a spirit as you suppose. Jesus is eternally the God, man, our high priest and king. And he puts it this way at the end of his gospel. A text we usually call the Great Commission. We'll read this, these verses whenever we want to amp each other up and say, let's go out and let's make some converts and baptize people. Let's get out there and do some work. But this has even more in it than that. This has echoes and a reminder that God is with us. Look at how he says it. The disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. They were instructed to go and wait after his resurrection at this one place, and they do. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. They worshipped him. Now, a good Jewish guy doesn't worship a human king. Doesn't worship a human high priest. Nobody's bowing down to Moses and bowing down to David and saying, you're the same as God. The great prayer of the Jews is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But now, they've become so convinced that this is a different person, that this is God in the flesh, a God-man, that they worship Him. And there's some doubting, because this is hard. This is a break in all of their tradition. This is a new thing that God has done, an important thing in Jesus. 
And so there's doubting. But Jesus comes to them and he confirms that they're right to worship him. And he says it this way. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So in me, in my body, in my being, the, the realms of heaven and earth are forever and permanently united together. This is why Jesus is the new temple. The temple is the place where heaven and earth overlap. You can go in and be in the presence of God and worship. And Jesus says, this is me now. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so go make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Another remarkable change for these worshipers. That their prayer that is before only said, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, now is understood to still be true, but to mean that there's a Father and a Son and a Holy Spirit. Here is the Son, and they're looking at Him in the face, and they can touch Him, and they can kiss Him, and they can hold His hand. And He says to them, Surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age, by which Jesus promises, I came to be with you, and not for a time, but to be here and to stay. I'm with you always. This is his name, almost in reverse. Emmanuel, God with us. And he says, I am with you. The end of the age. As long as this endures, as long as this carries, until God fulfills the great promises of the book of Revelation that hadn't been written yet, but he remakes all things, makes all things new, and the new heavens and the new earth come together. Until that time when you're in your resurrection body and you can hold me and kiss me and touch my hand again, I am with you. I am one of you, and I understand what it is to be you because I've become you. And I won't change it to the end of the age. Sometimes we think of Jesus as being with us to the end of the age in spirit, and that's kind of comforting. It's like Jesus will give us a tingly moment on the nape of our neck when we read the Bible and we're really touched. It's like tingle, scripture reading tingles, right? And we go, well, I feel the spirit of God, and we go, yes, Jesus is with us to the end of the age. He means that, but he means so much more than that. And sometimes we think, well, this is nice. Jesus empathizes with you through all of your hurting and suffering to the end of the age. Isn't that nice? But he's God. And he doesn't fully understand. But what Jesus is saying here is, no, don't you understand my name? With you. With you. You're never alone. And you're never in the dark again. And Jesus will return with the sound of a trumpet. Be caught up to meet him in the air. The promises of revelation will be fulfilled. The city coming down and the new heavens and the new earth created. And you're going to walk up to him. And you're going to touch him. You're probably going to hug him. And drop kisses all over his neck. And he's going to say, I'm still with you. And this is why the earth is so important. It changed everything about God and us forever. This is who we worship. This is who is crucified for. This is why it means so much that he was buried and came back to life. Because we came to. Today we're going to sing one more song before we take the communion supper together. Uh, and, then, and then we'll finish our service. But let's think about this as we enter into worshiping Jesus.